We're going to continue. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of works each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are holy. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God. Thank you very much, Ian, for reading for us. And let me add my welcome, especially if you're here um, for the dedication or just new to Chalmers um, this morning. Welcome uh, I hope quickly this will feel like a place you can call home. Let me lead us in prayer before we turn to this passage. Father, you say, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to understand your thoughts as we look at your word now. Please help us to grasp your wisdom and be shaped by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, this morning, we're actually going to have quite an abrupt start to the sermon, because the passage we just read begins with an abrupt start, a stark wake-up call. Sometimes um, when preaching, something is said from the front that is so surprising or controversial or outrageous that there's a moment of kind of total silence, a kind of stunned silence. And the first few verses of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians would have been like that. They are a stark wake-up call, a real kind of slap in the face for this church. I imagine when this letter was first being read out in Corinth, you could have heard a pin drop three verses in. In fact, you probably could have heard audible gasps. Did he really just say that? Have a look down on page 953 in the church Bibles if you've got one. It will help to have it open. And I realize for us it may not sound that outrageous, but I'll explain why it is in just a moment. I, brothers, says Paul, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. You are still of the flesh. Striking, Paul says, when I was first there in Corinth, you were babies in Christ. Think of the dedication, just getting going. But even now, you're not ready for solids. You're still spiritual babies. You're not mature. You're still of the flesh. And I realize that might not not sound today like a slap in the face, but it really is when you know what this church is like. Remember, this is the church that that thinks of themselves as extremely spiritual, as really mature, the kind of church that other churches should admire, look to, maybe be trained by. Paul calls them babies. It's a real shock. It is a church, a bit like Chalmers, that would take its, its preaching, its teaching seriously. It would be active, lively, full of gifted people, and a letter comes from the great apostle Paul. Do you know, he's written a direct letter to us. Um, we actually have a connection with him. It goes way back. He, he was like our founding father. If you look on the pulpit, there's a little plaque that says, Paul preached here. And so one Sunday with lots of pomp and, and fanfare, they, they start reading the letter out. And it starts brilliantly, lots of encouragement, thanksgiving. And he gets to the start of chapter 3 and he says, I, brothers, we're Paul's brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. You're infants in Christ. Even now, you're not ready. You're not out of nappies, Christianly. The force of that impact is actually more shocking if you were here last week for the end of chapter 2. So just have a look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Paul's been pointing out that there's, there's a kind of huge difference between a natural person over here, kind of person who's not yet a Christian, just a natural person, and someone who's had their eyes opened, a spiritual person, someone who God the Holy Spirit has helped to understand and accept what God says about Jesus. Um, Incidentally, if you're here looking into Christian things, and you know someone who's become a Christian, that's why suddenly they start seeing things really differently, start thinking about Jesus really differently. Tonight, in the baptism service we have, we'll have a few testimonies, and we'll hear that. I used to think the cross of Jesus was irrelevant, nonsense. Just take it or leave it. 
Now I think it's the center of the universe. Huge difference when God the Holy Spirit opens someone's eyes and someone's heart. So, so he's just, at the end of chapter 2, he said, natural people over here. That's the kind of the city of Corinth, the city of Edinburgh, Morningside, Morningside High Street, just full of people who, who think the cross of Jesus is nonsense. It's irrelevant, weak, foolish. And then people over here who are Christians, who have the Spirit. And where would the Corinthians have put themselves on that map that Paul's just drawn? Well, not just in the Christian category, but like all the way over here, in the kind of cream of Christianity, the really spiritual people. Where does Paul put them? Well, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. Verse 3, even now you're not yet ready, you're still of the flesh. Spiritually, you're not even out of nappies. I can barely talk to you as Christians. You're acting and thinking far more like the city you came from than the God you've come to. You're thinking like those who don't know Jesus. How is that? Why is Paul being so rude? Why are they so out of step with God the Holy Spirit and so in step with the culture around them? Well, as we go through the book, we'll see lots of ways in which the world's thinking has kind of seeped into this church but the first area, the, the issue that dominates chapters 1 to 4, is there on the, the top of your handout. If you want an outline of uh, the progress we're gradually making through this talk, it's there on the back of the handout. And the, the first issue is this playground Christianity. That is proud, childish, comparison Christianity. My church is better than yours. My church leader, more specifically, is better than yours. I don't know if you've ever heard a, a conversation between kind of six-year-olds in the playground who are trying to make themselves look big. You know, kind of, my dad has a red bicycle. Well, my dad has a red car. Well, my dad has a black Land Rover and a motorbike. That's red. My mum has a convertible Ferrari. Playground Christianity. My leader is better than yours. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Our church is better than yours because look who we've got coming through to preach. Look who's on our staff team. And Paul, he's heard reports of that, that kind of personality-driven, tribal factionalism. And he recognizes that kind of thinking is not the mind of Christ. That's the thinking of the world, human thinking. So this brings us to our first point today. Human wisdom focuses competitively and divisively on humans. Human wisdom focuses competitively and divisively on humans. I don't think I need to spend much time convincing you that this kind of competitive, divisive, tribal approach to leaders is still typical of the world we live in. You don't have to watch Westminster even for a day at the moment to, to not see that. And Holyrood or Washington, it's just the same, isn't it? It's just typical, it's human. And it's not just politics. If you were to go into the world of entertainment or business, well, the cult of personality, of celebrity, of influencers, it's probably, if anything, stronger in the West today than it was in first century Corinth. But it should not be in the church. Let me read from verse 3 again. You're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? As these Corinthians divide them into different kind of loyal tribes, competing to to get one up on each other through their connection with a particular leader or personality, Paul says that's human thinking, just like the city around you. And it really is still in the church today. I I was on a minister's conference two weeks ago, you'll know that, Um, and you only have to head to the coffee break to to hear the kind of the name dropping, the numbers dropping. Our church has really grown. Oh, you know that Christian superstar speaker? Well, I did actually have dinner once. Um, he's one of the people who got me into ministry. He recognized my gifts. Uh, an overstrong loyalty to particular Christian leaders with strong personalities or significant ministries. It may seem like it's just kind of harmless Christian fame, claim to fameism. But it can easily spill into competition, divisive, tribal Christianity. I'm with him. My leader's better than yours. Playground Christianity. Our church is better than yours. Have you seen what we've got planned? Have you seen who we've got preaching? Do you know we're planting a training church? Babyish Christianity. Worldly. What is so worldly about it? Well, it puts all the focus on human beings. Their strength, their power, their abilities, their wisdom, which is the opposite of what the gospel does, God's wisdom. If you've been around since chapter 1, you'll know that we've been seeing how God's wisdom deliberately turns human thinking upside down. So since chapter 1, verse 18... Paul's been talking about the fact the cross is foolish-looking, weak-looking, and yet God's power to save. In God's infinite wisdom, he designed an unimpressive message about the cross of Jesus to save unimpressive people, just normal folk like us, through unimpressive speakers. And the thing is, he does it deliberately. He does it that way to outsmart people who think they're clever. Look at how chapter 1, verse 28 put it. 1, verse 28, on, on page 952. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, listen to this, no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, sometimes we wish there were more celebrities who are Christians, more rich people, powerful people, more famous, clever people who follow Jesus. That would maybe make the whole thing more credible. But God doesn't think like that. Don't get me wrong, he wants all kinds of people to be saved. We saw that in 1 Timothy. But it's not that he, he kind of tried to aim high and he couldn't manage the headhunting and recruitment, so he's had to kind of lower his standards and settle for us. Not at all. He's deliberately building an unimpressive church through the unimpressive cross, to subvert the world's proud thinking. Human wisdom is all about human beings looking good now. God's wisdom, well, it's completely different. The Corinthians had fallen into that track. Track. Who are the leaders who look good, who sound impressive? And how can I make myself look good by kind of being in their orbits? 
I was going to say it's the kind of thinking they've fallen into, but of course it's the kind of thinking they've never grown out of. It's just natural. It's where we start. So what about us for Chalmers? I think there is a searching diagnostic question here for us as a church family. Are we too focused on human leaders here? Let me say, I'm not aware of any of the kind of factionalism or disunity that's going on in Corinth, so I don't think this is a huge rebuke for us. But it is right to ask the Lord, as I have been this week, to to search our hearts and see if we're in danger of this same kind of human-centered thinking. So here's the thing, even if we don't boast in our leaders or fight about our leaders and preachers, it's good to ask, are there ways we're over-focused or unhealthily attached to particular personalities? Are there any shreds of the cult of celebrity here? For those of us who are preachers or elders or small group leaders or teachers of young people, this is a really good question to ask ourselves. Do we point people to Jesus? train people to rely on him as the good shepherd, or subtly get people to revolve around us, to rely on us and treasure us? If there are even the first leanings towards that kind of human-centered thinking, well, the rest of the passage is going to both continue to expose it and start to correct it. So let's move on from verse 5 onwards to point 2. True spiritual wisdom focuses on God. Now, that's actually pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, duh, of course it does. But, but the thing is, uh, babyish Christians sometimes need obvious reminders. The Corinthians certainly did. And I think we'll find it's a profoundly searching issue, this. A spiritually mature, wise Christian won't focus on human leaders, but on the God whom they serve. I'm going to read verses 5 to 9, and and as I do, listen for how Paul reorientates them to focus on God as the big player. Verse 5, what then is Apollos, what is Paul's servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Do you see the point? It's rammed home repeatedly. Focus on God, not human leaders. So whoever it is, myself, Robin, Sam, Johnny, Paul, Apollos, Don Carson, John Piper, we're all just servants but the Lord assigns the ministry and work. Hang on, hang on, hang on, we might say. Surely it is is right. It's kind of natural to have a real attachment to those who've nurtured you in the Christian faith. And yes, of course, of course there's real love and affection. Paul will describe himself as a father in the next chapter to the Corinthians. But we must remember where the growth comes from, who really causes growth. So verse 6 Paul and Apollos actually have been instrumental in the Corinthian church's history. Paul planted the church with the gospel seed. Apollos watered it with Bible truth. But there was only ever growth because of God. I was saying this week to the staff and and Matt team that I think 
those five words are some of the most important five words you can remember in ministry. Only God gives the growth. Protects us from all sorts of perils. And Paul really wants this point driven home. So verse 7, have a look at this. He puts it so strongly. I think verse 7 is stronger than any of us here would dare to say it. Verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. I wonder if we're willing to accept that when it comes to church growth, myself or Robin, even the Apostle Paul and Apollos, were essentially nothings. That's what the verse says. Of course, we'd want to immediately qualify that. We'd want to say, well, hang on, Paul did play an important role. He preached Christ crucified. It mattered that Apollos taught the same gospel as Paul and nurtured this young church with truth. Of course, how church leaders build is important. We're going to get to that eventually. You can't have a wolf in the pulpit. The sheep will be damaged if you do. Of course, we spend a huge amount of energy as a church family, time and investment, training and sending pastor teachers. It does matter how they do their job. But while all those things are true, and we're going to get to them, the fundamental truth is this. Every single human leader is replaceable. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? Maybe this is one of those pin drop silences. Every single human leader is replaceable. Now, just in case anyone's starting to worry, this is not an attempted coup from the assistant minister. (laughs) I wonder if that's occurred to anyone. Robin and I have discussed this uh, all week, Um, and we, we fully agree that this chapter says that each of us could be replaceable. You could swap in another faithful gospel minister, and the MAP program would keep going. This church could keep growing. Why? Because God gives the growth. You see, real, deep, lasting church growth never ultimately depends on the personality of the leader. In that sense, we're not as important as you might think we are. We're not as important as we might think we are. I was involved in a church that was developing plans for a church plant, got a long way along, trained the team, had everything lined up, and then just near the launch time, for urgent and appropriate reasons, the minister who was leading the plant had to step back. It was an unnerving moment for everyone involved, and again, don't worry, this isn't a prophecy about Redeemer. It's certainly not an announcement about Sam. Everything's fine. But the point is... The plant still went with a different leader, a different faithful gospel leader, and God still gave growth because God went with the plant. And actually, we all watched the valuable lesson of 1 Corinthians 3 happening in front of our eyes. Robin put it like this in our sermon prep meeting. If I think Chalmers is dependent on me, I'm wrong. And I would say the same thing myself. If you think Chalmers is dependent on me, you're wrong. And so how silly to divide God's church into tribes based on those different leaders, those different preachers, those big personalities or gifted leaders in church life, whether it's local or national. 
Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. Verse 9, we're God's fellow workers. So actually it's a real test of the spiritual maturity of a church to see whether they're able to cope with a famous leader moving on or retiring. As you look around the world at some of the most famous preachers, it's a real test of the depth of someone's ministry. Did they train people to rely on Christ or them? And from the church, was there a spiritually wise acknowledgement that God's the one who really leads and grows the church? Again, it's why team ministry is such a blessing. It's why if the Lord provides another staff appointment, it'll be a real blessing if there's someone who isn't like Robin and isn't like me, but is faithful, lovingly teaching God's word, will we trust that God can give the growth? That's point two. True spiritual wisdom focuses on God. But if God's the active agent, if he's the key player, the prime mover, what actually is God doing? What's he growing? What's he building? Well, this brings us um, to our third point. In the middle of verse 9, the image that Paul uses shifts from farming to building. So you need to get your imaginations into the kind of hard hat construction world. Um, Think Edinburgh St. James. Uh, We were were cashing in a free uh, cup of tea and cake from the John Lewis Cafe. It's not an advert. But um, (laughs) having a cup of tea, looking down on the uh, amazing development that's going on there. Think of that. Um, Or better, actually, think of a, a kind of uh, a temple or cathedral being constructed. Maybe cast your minds to Notre Dame in Paris and the, the reconstruction, the years of renovation that will be needed there. Or Solomon's temple or Herod's temple in Jerusalem. A kind of massive project, building a temple. Verse 16 will tell us God is building a temple. And this is kind of God's building project. Lots Like a massive um, edifice lots of people are involved in it but it is God's building verse 16 do you not know your God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you so if anyone destroys God's people God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple I mean that shows it's not a literal physical building obviously this is not a kind of not um, shaking the tin for a physical building project this is the Corinthian house churches being God's temple, God already dwelling them in his spirit, just like he's here this morning with us, dwelling in our hearts by his spirit, but being a temple under construction still. Verse 10 is going to speak about people continuing to build in this temple on the foundation Paul has laid. That's what God's doing. He's building this uh, holy temple. What's the time frame for completion? Well, as all the way through the book, Um, God has his eyes on eternity. That's the day in verse 13, the day, the day of Jesus' return. That's the kind of time frame for the project. Um, And what, what kind of building does he want? What would be an appropriate temple for God? Well, a holy temple. Verse 17 again, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So true wisdom focuses on God. That was point two. But point three, what God is doing is building a holy temple for eternity, the church. And I'm just kind of flagging that up now because that is going to be a a bedrock for the rest of the book going forward. 
remembering that we are God's holy temple, would actually sort out a lot of the problems going on in Corinth. You see, the city, the human wisdom of the city is all about me and all about now. How can I look good? How can I attach myself to a human leader who makes me look good? Whereas God's wisdom, well, it's all about building a holy church, gathering lost people into a holy church for eternity. If you want to know if you're a mature Christian, well, how much do you care about helping see God's church grow? Lost people being gathered together into God's holy church. And the fact is, the more we understand that's what God's doing, the more we'll be careful to help with the building project, not damage it. Which brings us to these three exhortations at the bottom of the handout. Um, I've been skipping so far the kind of commands um, in verses 10 to 15. If you have read through it, you you may have questions, especially about verses 14 and 15. We'll get to those. The fundamental command, though, is the end of verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. So having said, God's got this great building project, the church, we must be careful how we build it. Now, who's this command given to you? Are you able to just switch off for a few minutes? Well, of course, directly, kind of primarily, it's given to people like me, full-time paid ministers, me, Robin, those training, Sam, Johnny, Ian, Davy, Scott, But actually, it's given to every kind of Bible teacher in the church and leader in the church. So elders, small group leaders, children and youth leaders. And actually, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 14, all Christians can build up the church with the way they talk to each other. For example, over coffee after a service. Do you build up the church or do you damage God's building project? So actually, all of us have a role to play, even if some of us, uh, it's more of a full-time role. Let's just look through God's building regulations on his temple project. First, verses 10 to 11. Be careful what you build on, Jesus Christ or not. So verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is one truth the church is built on, one gospel, one good news of Jesus Christ, as proclaimed by the apostles. The message of Christ crucified, the message of the cross we've been hearing about so far in this series. To not build on that message is to be building a completely different building, an idol temple. Sadly, some Christians do give years of their lives to that. So all Christian ministry, formal, full-time, paid, informal, part-time, voluntary, speaking over coffee and love to one another, it's all to be built on the apostles' witness to Jesus Christ, the foundation stone. So if you do ever hear folk, including me, starting to suggest a Christianity that doesn't really have the cross at its centre, well, be warned Likewise, if someone speaks about the cross, but not the way the apostles did, not using the Bible's explanation of the cross, be warned. 
So fast, so straightforward. My guess in this church family is that's a danger we're already aware of. The second warning is slightly more subtle, verses 12 to 15. Be careful what you build with. Be careful what you build with eternal treasure or present chaff. This is a lot more subtle. I think we might be more susceptible here because notice in verse 12, this is building on Jesus Christ. So verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation, i.e. the foundation of Jesus, verse 11, so this is ministry happening in a real living gospel-based church. But notice verse 12, there's different kinds of building materials and different qualities of building work going on. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I don't know if you've had much experience with contractors. Um, uh, No doubt we'll get plenty of experience when this building is refurbished post-Napier. The fact is there can be a real variety in quality, can't there? Similar quotes, but huge difference in the care and the pride and the materials used in someone's work. Did they work hard to keep building in line with the existing structure, a solid, firm result, quality, or was it a bit more slapdash? You know, kind of look good for a while, but won't last the course, just did the bare minimum. Different sorts of work, different sorts of materials. In verse 12, there are three that are kind of expensive and lasting, gold, silver, precious stones, and then there are three that are cheaper, more temporary, more flammable, wood, hay, straw, And Paul's chosen that deliberately because he says on the day of judgments, only some of those materials will survive. That is, on the day of judgment, only some Christian ministry will be shown to have actually been doing anything, achieving anything eternally. It's quite sobering, isn't it? Just have a thought of that inferno blazing through Notre Dame Cathedral. Some of it survived. But not all of it. The roof is gone. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, let me be clear. This isn't actually talking about who gets saved. We're saved by Jesus alone, grace alone, the cross alone. And verse 15 makes it clear, actually, both people, the wood straw people and the the gold silver people, end up getting saved. Now, this is about what ministry lasts, what ministry activity actually withstands Judgment Day. See, God's building a holy church. And on the final day, some people, whether voluntary or full-time, will receive a commendation for the ministry they've done. If you see my daughter this morning, she's wearing a medal. She got it at nursery for, I'm not really sure what, jumping? Maybe it's a sports medal of some sort. She's so proud of it. On the final day, there will be commendation for those who put time and energy into proclaiming Christ to others. Well done, good and faithful servant. You focused on Christ crucified, not yourself. Come and meet some of the people who are here eternally, holy, because of your hard work. And I'm not just talking about ministers, that could be any of us, speaking about Jesus to someone we know. 
witnessing about Jesus to someone lost. Then there'll be other people who look good, seem the part, active churches, but actually they weren't building a holy people for God through the cross. They were focusing attention somewhere else. It could be the, the great-looking leader, it could be great entertainment, it could be impressive rhetoric, it could be putting on a show on a Sunday. Now, I've been pondering kind of what is the wood and hay and straw today and, and what is it for us? I think that's a good thing to keep reflecting on and talking about. I don't think it's easy to discern. I think in some places it would be the kind of flashy gimmickry, you know, the huge investment in putting on a show, the lights, smoke, cameras, incredible music. Um, ministry like that can look great, seemingly have huge life attached to it. And it's not anti-Christian, nothing kind of wrong with it but it can also produce little eternal holy fruits unless there's a real uh, focus on proclaiming Jesus. Likewise, as preachers, we could put on a glossier, more polished display Sunday by Sunday from this pulpit. I mean, sometimes we could do with probably being clearer and simpler and shorter. We know that. We are working on it, I promise. But if we gave a lot less time to understanding what the passage of the Bible we're looking at says and a lot more time to just the presentation side, well, it would be far easier to sit and listen. It would be more entertaining. As a Christian minister, it is possible to make people laugh and cry like a stand-up comedian, but not really help build a church holy for eternity. But I wonder, and, and do talk to us about this, still pondering it, but I wonder if our biggest danger actually isn't the Sunday show or the preaching rhetoric. I think we're aware of those. I wonder if it's just the risk of over-trusting in human strategy, in the quality of our vision, organization, planning. Now, don't mishear me here. Just like with music and just like with preaching in a listenable way, um, it's, it's, not, it's not wrong to, to be careful in how we plan and think strategically. Of course we should use the gifts God's given us um, as a church family, and we should think how do we make the best use of the time given the, the resources God's given us. But if we trust in that, or start to think that makes us impressive, whatever it is, our training structures, the fact we speak on conferences or run conferences, that we raise a lot of funds... If we start to think it's the strength of our strategic leadership that grows the church rather than God, well, then this warning comes in. Be careful what you build with. I don't think we're necessarily getting this wrong, but we just need to be wary of it. Because as we close, we need to be careful what we boast in. This is verses 18 to 23, just very briefly. Um, Surprisingly, actually, the Bible doesn't say boasting is wrong. It all depends what you boast in. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 31. As it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the law, in the Lord, sorry, rather than boasting in human beings. And that idea comes back here. So verse 18, let no one deceive himself, of chapter 3, no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. And verse 21, let no one boast in men. 
Why don't we boast in men? Well, because we're all wrapped up in God and his building project. Let me read on. Verse 21, let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. It's funny, the Corinthians said, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. The gospel says, Paul, Apollos, Robin, Roger, belong to you because you're the church of the living God, his holy temple. And the church belongs to Christ, who belongs to God. So don't boast in people. It's to miss the point entirely. So as I turn to close in prayer, let me say, um, if there is any playground Christianity in this church family, well, let's take our eyes off the human personalities and fix them on Christ crucified. We belong to that God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do so often just drift into natural, human-centered thinking about ourselves, about other people. Thank you so much for the, the gospel, the cross, that humbles us and points to you. And we pray, as a church family, that we would always be giving you the glory and trusting ourselves on you and the Lord Jesus, our cornerstone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.